In our previous church, just outside Reading, for many years I was responsible for the church's discipleship activities. One of the groups I helped there was a group who wanted to read the Bible in one year. And if there's a similar group here, then I would be happy to help. I had at that time about a lady at a nearby church. One night she had a dream. In her dream, she was in heaven. And in heaven, Obadiah came to see her. And Obadiah asked her two questions. The first question was this. What did you think of my book? And the second question was, and what difference did it make to how you lived your life? And she realised that she couldn't answer either question. And so she decided that she would join the Bible reading group in her church. Steve Miles, earlier in this series, said that he chose to speak on Ezra because he realised that he didn't know that much about Ezra and that he'd never heard a talk on Ezra. Well, I chose Joel for exactly the same reason. I have to tell you that since I chose Joel, uh, I discovered that he wrote in three short chapters, just 73 verses, a book that covers many of the big themes of the Bible, themes the Bible, Bible comes back to again and again. We don't have time to read the whole of the book of Joel this morning. If you're watching on YouTube, then I will try and, uh, and show the verses that I'm talking about. If you're listening on audio, I will try and remember to tell you uh, which verse it is is being shown on the screen. Uh, you might want to uh, open your book, uh, open your Bible at the book of Joel. Uh, if you're wondering where it is, then a few weeks ago, Sarah Jane spoke on the book of Daniel. If you followed that talk, then you'll find Joel's book is just a few pages further on. As I said, Joel covers many of the big themes in the Bible. We don't have time to go into these themes in detail this morning. But if you're left with lots of questions, do please contact us by email or get in touch by using Facebook and we will try and help to answer your questions. But as we begin, let's pray. Father, we thank you for all these people in the Old Testament that we have been studying over the last few weeks. Thank you that what they said and what they did and what they wrote are relevant to us today. Help us this morning to understand what it is that Joel wrote that you want us to learn from and help us then to put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Joel was a prophet. Jude last week said that a prophet was somebody who hears from God and then passes on the message that they have heard. The only thing we know for certain about Joel's family background is that his father's name was Pethuel. Joel tells us that in the very first verse of his book. Sadly, the only thing we know about Pethuel is from the same verse, and it is, of course, that he had a son whose name was Joel. The central image that Joel uses in his book is that of a swarm of locusts. In the poetic imagination of Joel, 
This swarm of locusts is described variously as a nation, as an army, as a people, and as a judgment from God. So when was Joel writing? Well, commentators who look at the book of Joel tend to be split roughly into two groups. One group believe that Joel uh, was inspired by an actual swarm of locusts, and he then likened that swarm of locusts to attack by an army. The other group believes that Joel was inspired by an armed attack on Jerusalem, and that he then used that armed attack and described it in terms of a swarm of locusts. Both groups of commentators look at the historical events that are recorded as having happened to the people of Israel. And they then tie the book of Joel to these historical events. And they come up with answers that are roughly speaking 400 years apart. So in your conversation with Joel in heaven, you might like to start by asking him uh, what event inspired him to write his book as he did. But it looks as if Joel thought of what he was writing as applying not just to one particular time in history, but as something that we should keep on coming back to. In verse 3 of the first chapter, Joel says, Tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children, and their children to the next generation. Now, the people he was writing for knew about locusts. In English, we have many different words for rain. Things like uh, shower, downpour, thunderstorm, and so on. Because for us, rain is important. In the same way, in Hebrew, there are nine different words for locusts. Different versions of the Bible translate these words in various ways. The New International Version, which I'm using today, translates Joel's opening description like this in verse 4. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Let me tell you a little bit about locusts. We all know now a lot more about the R number than we did a few months ago. With an R number of three, one person with COVID-19 at the beginning of March would by now have infected over 120,000 people at the end of July. A single locust laying eggs at the beginning of March would by now at the end of July have a dynasty of about 18 million locusts. In one day, 18 million locusts eat about the same as 7,000 people. But a typical swarm of locusts doesn't have 18 million locusts in it. It has about 250 million locusts in it. It's maybe five kilometers or a little more across and it travels about 150 kilometers in a day, stripping every single plant 
in its path, absolutely bare as it goes. In 1866, a single swarm of locusts in Algeria led to 200,000 people dying of starvation. And locusts are not restricted to history. These images are all from the last few months, as locusts are today affecting parts of Asia and parts of Africa. Joel, in his poetic imagination, sees this destruction as a warning sign of God's judgment on his own people. Wake up, he says in verse 5. Mourn, he says in verse 8. And then in verse 11. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. And his, and his description of this destruction goes on in the following verse. And, uh, and that verse ends with surely the people's joy is withered away. But the destruction by a swarm of locusts or even an invading army is not what Joel is really writing about in his book. The central theme of Joel's prophetic book is revealed in verse 15 of chapter 1, which says, Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The central theme of Joel's book is this, the day of the Lord. Now, depending on when you think Joel was writing, he might be the first person to record the idea of the day of the Lord. Or he might have picked it up from one of the other prophets writing in roughly the same period. So that's another avenue to explore in your conversation with Joel. But pretty quickly, Joel has some things to say about the day of the Lord. So as we move into chapter 2, at verse 1, he says, Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And then in verse 11, the day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? So he's saying about the day of the Lord, it's coming. It's unstoppable. It's not something to look forward to. Definitely not something to look forward to. And remember, at the beginning of his book, he says, tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children. This idea of the day of the Lord is returned to again and again throughout the Bible. It's about a moment in human history when God's power will unmistakably break in. A day when God's rule will be fully and decisively established. It will be established both by God exercising judgment and by the coming of a time of great blessing. And it may come as a surprise to you, but the land that Joel is writing about in verse two, in verse one and chapter, in verse one of chapter two, that land is the land which is often in the Old Testament called the promised land. And the people who will find that day dreadful is God's chosen people, the people of Israel. And they'll find it dreadful because their behavior has fallen so far short of what God expects to them, expects of them. 
and they will be judged by God. As Ben and Anna told us last week, the history of the people of Israel was marked by times of blessing and times of judgment. You may remember they talked about a cycle. And the cycle starts with the people walking closely with God, walking closely in God's way and experiencing a time of blessing. And then as time goes on, they start to forget about God's way and move further and further away from that until eventually there comes a time of judgment. And the time of judgment is often at the hands of an invading army, an invading people. And then when the people of God cry out for mercy, God raises up from their number somebody who will both lead them against the oppressing armies, but but also who will lead them back to God and God's ways and the time of blessing. Now, I have to tell you that the Bible makes clear that we will all be judged by God. Sometimes in normal times, by which I mean before COVID-19, sometimes people don't come to church because they think they're not good enough. The reality is that the Bible is absolutely clear. None of us is good enough for God. Not the person who welcomes you at the door. Not the person who leads the singing. Not the person who leads the prayers. And definitely not the person who is giving the talk. None of us is good enough for God. Paul put it like this in his letter to the church in Rome. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us is a sinner. We all fall short of God's standards. It's one of the big themes that runs throughout the Bible, that we're all sinners. But then Joel turns to another big theme of the Bible, that God is the God of second chances. Joel calls on the people to change their ways. Return to the Lord your God, he says in verse 13 of chapter 2. Come back to God. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. So he's saying to the people, come back, throw yourself on God's mercy. It's a theme that the Bible comes back to again and again. In John's Gospel, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him and says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist points to Jesus as the person who takes away our sin. And Jesus, who during his life on earth showed us and told us what God his Father is like, told the parable of the prodigal son. When the son realised the error of his ways in this parable and came back to his father, his father ran to meet him, took off his cloak and wrapped it round the returning son 
as a sign of complete and unconditional acceptance back into the family. That's what this God, who Joel tells us is slow to anger and abounding in love, longs to do for everyone who comes back to him. And the picture Joel paints from uh, chapter 2 and verse 19 onwards is that the people do return to God and God restores a time of plenty to his people. And so we have, for example, a, a description of that in verses 25 and 26 of uh, Joel chapter 2. And amazingly, in Joel's poetic imagination, in his prophetic word, it's not just that the next harvest will be bountiful, but that God will restore the harvest that the locusts have already destroyed, past as well as future. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, my great army that I sent among you. Now, if we were together in church today and you were sitting in front of me, uh, I might ask how many of you uh, who had already become Christians uh, became Christians before the age of 18. Surveys indicate uh, that about 75% of you, three quarters of you, uh, would say, yes, I, I became a Christian before the age of 18. It's why at New Life Church we put so much effort into our work with children and with young people and why we support the work of Eden's project in Sudbury and the surrounding area. But that means that about a quarter of the Christians among you became Christians as adults. In my previous church, there were a number of people who became Christians uh, in their 60s and 70s. One of them had numerous conversations with me in which he repeatedly expressed his regret at the years he had wasted before he became a Christian. The picture that Joel is painting is that God has restored these years that there need be no regret uh, over them. Jesus told uh, another parable, uh, and in this parable, there were three sets of labourers who were hired to work in a vineyard. One set was hired in the morning, one set at lunchtime, and the third set in the afternoon. And at the end of the day, They were all paid the same, according to Jesus' parable. The story makes the point that it doesn't matter when you come. God is generous. God redeems the years when you weren't a Christian. Jesus said to his first disciples, come and follow me. He says it still to anyone who will listen. I once heard a preacher uh, use an acrostic. He asked the question, um, who can come? And he answered it like this. Children can come. Old folk can come. The middle-aged can come. Everyone can come. 
And when we come, when we give our lives over to following Jesus, Joseph, Joel tells us that we will receive overwhelming spiritual blessing. And so in verse 28, he says, Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, as we read the Old Testament, we see evidence only that the Holy Spirit comes on a few individuals chosen for specific tasks. And an example is uh, is Deborah that uh, that we talked about last week. But you might recognize these words as also being from the New Testament. Peter used these words as he addressed the crowd on the day of Pentecost. As I said earlier, the day of the Lord is a day in human history when God's power will unmistakably break in. But the day of Pentecost was also a day when God's power unmistakably broke in, establishing a time of great blessing. We are living in that time, a time when, as Jude reminded us last week, God empowers all kinds of people, old and young, men and women, the obvious and the unexpected, to do things for him. But as we move into chapter three of Joel's book, he describes the day of the Lord as a terrible day of judgment on all the peoples of the earth. Now, I could have chosen any number of verses from chapter 3, but as an example, uh, here in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3, uh, the, the picture is one that all the nations, every people in the earth, are called to this valley of judgment. And there it talks about swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe, so great is their wickedness. And this too, this day of judgment, is again a theme that the Bible returns to again and again. Now, some people say, I like to think as a God of goodness and mercy. I don't like to think of God as a God of judgment. What they don't realise is that the whole of the Bible, the both Old Testament and New Testament, is about one God And it paints a completely coherent picture of God. Think for a moment about Jesus and his crucifixion on the cross. The cross was a means of killing people that had been honed by the Romans to maximise the suffering of the person being crucified. As a punishment, uh, the The Romans eventually abolished it because it was so barbaric and so cruel. What kind of good God, what kind of all-powerful, loving father would allow his son to go through that if it wasn't absolutely necessary? And what makes it necessary is that God is Absolute 
goodness, so good that he cannot feel indifferent about anything, so good that he cannot stand anything that is not perfectly good. And we have already seen, you and I, that we are not perfectly good. Now, the baptism service in the Church of England is filled with imagery. One image is this. Once the person has been baptised, the minister might put a white cloth on them. The imagery is this, that when we confess our sins and put our trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, God no longer sees our imperfections, but we put on the purity of Jesus and God sees only that when he looks at us. What the Bible teaches us about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, when Jesus will come again, is that for some, for those who have failed to accept God's offer through faith in Jesus, it will be a day of infinite grief. The book of Revelation describes it as being thrown into a lake of fire. But it doesn't need to be like that. In contrast to the parched and desolate land that he pictures in chapter one of his book, as his prophecy comes to a close, Joel pictures the future for God's people like this. And I'm looking now at verse 18 of chapter three. He pictures the mountains dripping with wine, the hills flowing with milk, the valleys running with water. The book of Revelation describes it like this. God himself will be with his people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. A scholar in the 19th century called Hay Aiken uh, pictured it like this. It's like a stained glass window with two halves. In one half shines the light of sunrise through the cross of Jesus, the herald of a bright new day. In the other half shines the more sombre light uh, of hosts of people on the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. If we haven't already done so, each one of us needs to choose. In, In which half will we live in the light of? God's decision on the day of judgment about our fate will decide on the basis, will be decided on the basis of what we have decided on this, about this window. And if we've already chosen to live in the light of what Jesus has done for us, even then we need to keep the other light in mind. The Bible reminds us, the church, that God offers salvation to all people. It's our job to make sure that everybody we know is aware of that offer. And as Matt Levitt reminded us 
several weeks ago. Uh, we don't need to know everything. We don't need to wait until we know everything. But we need to lead, live our lives in the light of the bits of the Bible we know and understand already. In the words of Mary to the servant at the wedding at Cana, do whatever he tells you, not to earn God's judgment, but in response to God's love. So what difference should Joel's book make to how we live? Joel's book points us to some of the great themes of the Bible. Some of the themes the Bible comes back to again and again. And he points us to the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And the day of judgment, the Bible is clear, will happen. You might not think so because it's been a couple of thousand years since Jesus died. But actually the delay is to allow you to return, to come back, come back to God. Come and follow me, as Jesus said. And do whatever he tells you. How do we know what he tells us? Well, it brings us back to reading the Bible in one year. Our aim in reading the Bible in one year was not to get people through the Bible. It was to get the Bible through people. Because it's by reading the Bible that we will find out what it is he wants of us. What he is telling us. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, for Joel, for what he has written in the Bible. We thank you uh, that he points us uh, to you, that he asks us to tell our children and for them to tell their children about what is going to happen and what decision they have to make. And so, Father, help us today to live in the light of what Joel says. In Jesus' name, amen.